0: love talk radio oh wow you're actually wearing your hair down tonight yeah because i finally decided that i love my hair i figured out the solution for my morning frizz midday poof and even next day bedhead it's E secret weapon touch-up cream by john Frieda. well you and your hair look flawless flawless and touchable feel oh. see it's soft Smooth ends, no flyaways, shiny. Well, I clearly need to get some because your hair looks amazing. Frizz E Secret Weapon, only from John Frieda.
1: Blog Talk
0: Radio. Welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show, sponsored by tennisballs.com, brought to you on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we're gonna jump right into this week's conversation, part five of my chats with John Falbo, because we have so much to talk about and an hour never seems to be enough time. So without any delay, I'm going to just go ahead and bring John right on the line and we're going to jump in. John, thanks so much for being with us again.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me again.
0: Well, we have a lot to talk about and so I'm I'm going to just jump right into the meat if that's okay with you.
1: Yeah, that's, that's where I like to be. You know that.
0: <laughs> well, let's start
1: because
0: um, by the time this episode airs, the Australian Open is going to be long behind us But um, because we are pre-recording. But uh, at the beginning of the Australian Open, I'd written an article about how to watch professional tennis matches and what juniors can learn. And there seemed to be a, a lot of interest in that topic. And I thought, who better to discuss that than you? So, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how junior players and and their parents and coaches, for that matter, can watch professional matches, college matches, uh, even high-level junior matches and learn from those matches. What are some of the things that they should be watching and looking for and looking at when they're watching these players on the court?
1: One of the one of the first things that comes to my mind as I listen to that question, Lisa, is, um, you know, if you if you examine if anyone who's dealt with uh, people in the in the law field, attorneys or doctors or dentists or plumbers or electricians, pretty much knows that ninety to ninety five percent are mediocre to average to fairly reasonable, and then there's a there's a 5% area or so, if not less, that are exceptional at what they do. And the reason I say that and the reason it came to my mind is because I think in this industry that we're in, this tennis industry, I think there's, there's a lot of fluff out there. And so before even speaking about, I wanted to set a premise before speaking about what to watch and say, The hardest job for a parent, a coach, a child coming up is weeding through all of the crap, for lack of a better way to say it, and really getting to some genuine information that is actionable, that you can use, and that will help. Because the problem is there's a lot of, and it's just like any industry, a lot of people want to make money. And that's cool. I got no problem with people making money. That's a good thing. The problem comes in when when the information and the quality of the information is sacrificed and there's not a congruency between one's level of experience and the information that they're trying to portray because if that congruency is screwed up, then you're getting information from someone that doesn't understand from whence they came. And so mm. it be- it becomes very errant information. And, <clears throat> you know, it's why a guy like Federer will have Ed Berg in his corner, you know. And and you may edit this out if you like. I, you know I'm going to say it because you know my Facebook posts. You know that I speak my mind versus a quote-unquote sports psychologist type like a Jim Lair, who really – view has always been a charlatan because he's never competed at, at a level that would allow him to really understand what's going on at the most pressure-packed moments. And if you don't understand that, if you're just guessing at that and trying to put like a really nice title on it and sell it, it's not going to hold up versus somebody like Edberg, that's been through countless pressure packed situations. He knows the the gentleness that it takes, he knows the volatility that's there. And so the premise I, I wanted to set is in my message to parents, coaches, uh, children playing, people playing, be very careful from whence you get from whom you get the information because and what kind of information you're inputting, because you can start with an improper premise And everywhere you go from that point, you're screwed. And so it's like this question with you saying, well, about watching, what's my view on watching? You know, there's a lot of, like, technical advice out there. There's a lot of people that that really fixate on technical stuff. Now, I'm telling you what, when you're at three all in the fifth, you ain't thinking about, Well, is the angle of my racket head 30 degrees or is it 20 degrees? And where exactly is my pivot foot? And you ain't thinking about any of that. I guarantee you that. You're thinking about how do I physically survive this? How do I then make sure that I'm making the balls the way I need to, making sure and exploiting that person's weaknesses, making sure and accentuating my own strengths? Because the minute you get caught up in unnecessary fluff, that that's all it takes. The margin is so thin with even, really, you want to know the truth of it, the top 2,000 guys in the world and probably the top 1,000 women in the world, the margins are getting so thin that if you spend your time thinking about unnecessary stuff, that's ball game. So,
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, I mean, the margins are ridiculously thin. Even, even yeah. looking at, if you look at collegiate players and look at them compared to some of the, you know, top pros on tour, I mean, they can be on court together and have a competitive match.
1: Hey, no question. You're on the money because, like, Ty Tucker at Ohio State, he's got guys on his mm-hmm. team that are not only winning rounds in challengers and, and no matter what anybody says, people that know the game know these guys in Challengers like uh Ryan Harrison just won in Dallas last week I believe and yep. you got guys in these challengers that that the guys and a lot of guys in futures that are that are having results put them on a grander stage and you put them in a bigger money event and they can hold their own and the margins are very, very Thin. And so Ty's got college guys That are not only winning rounds They're winning challengers And singles and doubles So you know And then you got a guy like Ryan Harrison He's winning challengers Well you put Ryan Harrison at any stage in the world And he can compete with anybody in the world So you take that to Well he's winning a challenger You make a correlation Well some, some of Ty's guys Are winning challengers There's and Todd had a guy, you know, a couple years ago that got up very quickly in the first 300 in the world. So that you're right. you're on the money. You are on the money. The college competition, in terms of the very best guys, uh, they're finding they can compete with anybody in the world.
0: So So let's get back to, you know, what – what is it that we can take away from watching these phenomenal athletes in action?
1: Well, I I would simplify it like this for, for this particular conversation to something that, that I feel like is most important. If anyone can call up these YouTube videos, okay. And um, anyone can call up these different, these different matches. Okay. And so what I was going to, what i was going to say is sorry i had a, a momentary interruption there um oh no worries so what i was going to say is you can you can call up youtube um and go pull up the nishikori federer match and 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 the other match i'll I'll briefly talk about is the zverev uh murray match but in the nishikori federer match call up the footage Okay, watch specifically how Federer identifies Nishikori's weakness, number one, and how Federer is completely in touch with his own strength, number two. And what you will see, Nishikori has always overcompensated on the forehand side ever since he's been a little guy, you know, five, six, seven years ago, even coming up through. And the reason he does that, the reason he'll whack the ball on the forehand side, is because deep down he feels inadequate on that side. And that's the case with a lot of guys. They'll whack the ball really hard, hoping to convince you and sell you that that's a strength. And if you watch over time statistically how many errors they make, usually they'll make more errors on the side they're overcompensating on. So if you watch this footage, Federer knows very well and Edberg knows very well that Nishikori's weaker side is on the forehand, and I would ask your listeners and to to view this and say, watch how many balls Federer is playing to Nishikori's forehand. Watch how many times he's serving, especially in the sets that he's winning, to Nishikori's forehand. Watch how many times Nishikori will shank the ball. Watch how many times Nishikori will miss forehands. Watch how many times Federer will generate weak balls on Nishikori's forehand. And especially as the match started getting tense and then Federer started pulling away at different points, it, there, was, it was no, like, there was no hiding it. The only time he would go to Nishikori's backhand is to open up the forehand. And over and over and over again, Federer would try to take his forehand as much as possible because that's his strength other than the serve and knowing how to intimately hold serve with his game but his forehand side, take that as much as possible and penetrate Nishikori's forehand side as much as possible. And if people will go and watch that footage, they'll be amazed at how much that happens. And from a simple, from a simple idea of identifying, hey, guy or gal, weak, where weak at. Where are they really weak? And that's easier said than done. There are subtleties within that. But where are they really weak? And then where am I really strong? And how do I match those two up? And at all costs, let's make sure and break that weak. Even if I'm not in touch with all of my strengths and, and know my game and my personality intimately well, how do I break down that weakness over and re, really relentlessly?
0: Well, and then let if me you take that, you this, John sorry let me let me ask you this because that's such an interesting way to look at it and you know with all of the technology we have and data collection and all of that now um, and especially with the top players on both the men's tour and the women's tour, you would expect that at least at the very top, the players are going to have access to data on their opponents that should shine a very bright light on strengths and weaknesses in their opponent. So, what is the difference when Nishikori comes up against Roger Federer versus the other guys that he's beaten prior to to meeting up
1: with Roger in the draw? There Why are is there are several Several differences. Okay. Several differences. Okay. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'll listen to the rest of your question.
0: No, go ahead. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, the data doesn't reveal the subtleties. In other words, if, if Nishikori has very difficult time with balls at his waist and above versus at his waist and below, if he has difficulty with balls in on his hip, versus stretched way out, balls that would look easy to to most everybody watching, right, but balls that are right. hit penetratingly hard on his hip, you know. So these kind of subtleties, they don't keep – most of the stats in tennis are very, very mediocre. You know, when you see stats on – they really insult everybody's intelligence with the stats that they put – on the major events, like first serve percentage, return percent, all this kind of stuff. There's a few people in tennis that are starting to really pursue worthwhile, in-depth statistical analysis. But it's not really mainstream. And in some other sports, you'd be amazed. You sit down with the stats and it's like, hey, does this guy like a curveball? Does he like a slider? Does he like it on his hips? Does he like, you know, like in baseball, for instance, does mm-hmm. he like it below the knees? Does he like it above the knees? Does he like it down in the dirt? Does he like, you know, where are his hands? Wear, there's a ton of statistical analysis. And, and so the data in tennis that's available, it doesn't really reveal very subtle, specific um, ideas. That's number one. So their data is many times useless because if you just say, well, a guy has a weak forehand, that really doesn't tell me anything. So, how is it weak? Where is it weak? In what capacity is it weak? It may be counterintuitive how it's weak, and you may have to look and see. Hey, He may hit, uh, if you remember in Wawrinka and Federer, and you watched the press conference with Wawrinka afterwards, there was a time at the end of the match there where Federer ran through like two or three games really quickly, and they had a rally, and Wawrinka thought Federer was going to keep bashing the ball, and Federer started, he hit a few just very slow loopers. And Wawrinka missed a couple backhands, just boom, boom, just like that. And Federer ran off the next three games because what was never talked about was Wawrinka got confused. And once he got confused, Federer hit a few winners. Wawrinka started missing the balls, and after you'd have to watch a press conference, Warinka actually said, <clears throat> "Yeah, he hit he he hit a few looper like slow balls," and I was like, "What's what's going on here?" And what he what no reporter knew to ask because they don't know the game well enough most of them, and what so what never came out was once that confusion started for Warinka, the margin is so thin, you give Federer that kind of little gap. He's gonna he's gonna start hitting a few winners. He's gonna penetrate you in ways that that you don't really care for and make you very uncomfortable. And then if you're walking around confused, you're done. So that's so, so and, interesting,
0: especially for those two guys who have played each other God knows how many times. They know each other's games in and out. And for Federer to be able to find a way to confound Warenka and cause him to feel that confusion on the court? I mean, what does that say about Federer's abilities? Holy cow.
1: Well, yeah, and and <clears throat> when the the second part of the answer to your question, what, after the data part <clears throat> was if these guys know one another so well, and then like you say, Wawrinka and Federer, well, I don't care what anybody says. Like, in in this conversation we're having, we can pick up on all kinds of analysis, okay, and that's one layer of it. When you're on the court in front of 10, 15, 20,000 people, you're playing for a title that you want that knows me. You, You know it means an enormous amount to you personally in terms of your achievement. You know it means a ton to you financially in terms of your achievement, Um, Everything you've worked for, all the emotional investment, the psychological, excuse me, investment that you've made. And then you have your body that's chemically reacting to being through three and four and five sets and your fatigue and all the mental machinations that you go through with your own fears and then having to overcome those. I mean, you have so many variables when you get under the lights. You know, and if you ever if, if mm-hmm. any listeners ever watch any of Floyd Mayweather's stuff, whether you like him or not, one of his main components of what he always says is, All you guys can talk all you want, but when we get under the lights for thirty, forty, fifty million dollars and you know the world is watching, you're a different boxer than you are doing an interview. And so that's the second component when you ask, you know, there's a lot of information. Yes, there's a lot of information. I think the majority of it is useless, okay? And, and then so if the majority of the data they're getting is faulty, comprehensive enough, and then you put that together with being on a stage that where everyone is nervous at some point, everyone has anxiety, everyone has fear that they have to overcome, that's the real stuff. You know, anybody can go to a chalkboard and say this, 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 and this. It's like Mike Tyson used to say. Everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, then, you, then your game plan kind of changes a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you're, and you're speaking of Federer's ability to adapt. And even in the third, fourth, and fifth set, you're always looking for that little edge. And you're fatigued and you're trying to push yourself. You're trying to find that edge, and this is the real art of the thing and something he's, he's one of the best ever at is finding, finding that little area, could be in the third set, fourth set, fifth set, kind of like in the Super Bowl last week. You know, everyone says Atlanta choke. I, that You look at Tom Brady and you look at how many games they win in the second half, and because they're fitter, because all of their people are assessing weaknesses, And because he can then come in, and once Atlanta's secondary got tired in that fourth quarter, he picked them apart. He can adapt like that, and they can adapt like that. But that is a very difficult thing to do. You have to be very fit, very practiced, and very able to adapt in an arena when you're under the lights. And not everybody can do that. And certainly at different levels, you know, with different people. Right. So I hope that I hope that answered your question somewhat thoroughly.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. I to me to watch somebody like Federer, even in the the men's final, and and I have to admit I haven't watched the women's final yet. I will by the time the show airs, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. But
1: yeah, it the men's
0: tremendous. final, um, to. You know, to see Nadal go up a break in that final set and then not win another game was unbelievable. And then to hear him talk about the match in his press conference after was incredible to me. The guy is, he's got an amazing way of looking at the game and, um, you know, we all talk about Federer and how incredible his win was and, and all of that. But I encourage people to go back and listen to Nadal's press conference at the end of the match, too. And I, I don't know how he keeps things in the, the healthy perspective that he does. I, I suspect it has a lot to do with his family and his coaching and all of that. Yeah, but, I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> to hear this guy talk about a heartbreaking loss like that.
1: Yeah, and that's, that, you know, the way that he can respond. And your, your idea that you just um, gave everyone is something I do constantly. I, I watch a lot of footage of matches, but I listen to a ton of uh, pre-match interviews, especially post-match interviews you know to see because you can tell a lot about a guy with how he responds and you can you there, there's a lot of really cohesive cogent moments after the match where even though they're being asked questions that many times are not very specific some questions just kind of sneak in there in a way that they're 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 more they're better than what the person asking them knows because they they hit on something that that the person would have thought about in depth and then you get those kind of answers and you can glean an enormous amount in in terms of what your mindset needs to be when you're walking on the court when you're dealing with victory when you're dealing with defeat because you're going to have both all the time you know and Mm -hmm. the the interviews are are really really key to watch just as key to me as the matches.
0: Well, that's a great point, and especially now with <laughs> with YouTube, um, all of those interviews are available and so easy to find. And and so I want to encourage the listeners uh, to have your kids watch these interviews of of some of their favorite players, not just after the player has won a match, but maybe even more importantly after they've lost. And to get a feel for how these top professionals handle defeat and how they keep things in perspective and and don't fall apart. And, you know, those are attributes that will serve our kids well no matter what they do in their future, whether it's on a tennis court or in a boardroom.
1: Well, and I I would humbly suggest, and it takes time, you cannot be a parent reads a book during the match you cannot be a parent that that finds diversion in talking to other people during the match it takes some time and some focus but if you're spending all this money on lessons and travel and hotel and all this stuff okay if you want a vacation i can think of a lot better ways go go to go to cabo go to grand cayman Go, to Europe, go somewhere for a week or two with a focused vacation and just vacation. If you're out for, for a vacation, tennis is not the place. Now, if, you, if you're going to spend this, these kind of resources and this kind of energy, there's one very fundamental thing you can do as a parent that will help your child enormously. It will help you bond with them. It will help you in your learning about the game. It will help you help them. It will help them help you. It will help you help yourself. It will help you help your coach and vice versa. And that is take your phone and video segments of your child's match. And I'm not talking a point or two. I'm talking as as much as your phone, your particular phone can tolerate, I'm talking eight to ten minute segments where you get how your child reacts in between points, where you get how they play points, what the opponent's doing, what they're doing, and you, when, when your child sees this and they see their behavior or they see their energy in between points or they see their strategic flaws during points, it opens up a whole new world because what it injects, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people in this industry function on emotion. They function on theory. And that's why, There's a top tier of people that make the majority of the money, and everybody else kind of scraps for the rest. Because when you're functioning on theory, you're guessing. You're guessing. And this is not a guessing game. It's hard enough as it is. You don't want to be guessing at the things that you can control. And when you take that video of your child and you have concrete evidence of the fact that either they were behaving poorly or they didn't, their energy was too low or too high in between points or that strategically they weren't in the ball game in terms of their mind and what they were trying to do. And you have that footage and you can watch it with them, not in a condescending way, but like, okay, here's what you thought happened and here's what really happened. And then you can sit with a coach and watch that and you can watch it yourself in your own time away from everybody. You have a, you're educating yourself at that point, and you're dealing with concrete, real, practical, actionable information. It's one of the top things any parent can do. Take the phone and video eight to ten minute segments. Even if you don't know anything about the game, you'd be amazed at how much you can learn about the game. The first thing my dad ever told me, not knowing anything about tennis, he just loved athletics and he understood sports. He was like, John, just hit it where they ain't.
0: <laughs> oh, if it were only so simple. <laughs> I was like, you know, I,
1: yeah, I wish I, I, I wish you would come out here and try to do that when when I'm dealing with all this stuff. But the basic idea, as you further yourself in your skills, it becomes it becomes more clear that yeah, you need to hit it where they ain't. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to take video. And even if you are a rocket scientist, it will help you simplify things because you take that video and you see what's happening. You see with your own eyes and it helps you. It helps your child. It helps the coach. It helps everybody. And if you're going to be investing this money, Let's, let's do some practical things. Instead of doing what sounds good, you know, like, again, have the racket at a 30-degree angle. Let's all be concerned with our pivot foot. Like, all these things that sound intelligent that are really pseudo-intellectual, do some practical stuff that can really help us. You know, let's assess, hey, what's really going on on the court? What are, what are my child's strengths? what are his opponent's or her opponent's weaknesses and how do we attack those and how do we attack those relentlessly in this arena because ultimately everybody gets you know yes you should do your best yes yes you should be reasonably treated of course these are given but at the end of the day after those premises are laid firmly in place your job is to win and it's not about getting a participation medal like you and I have talked about before. Your job when you go out there, beyond the premise of doing your very best, playing within the rules, uh, doing these, these very basic, uh, having these very basic parameters, your job is to win. You're going out there to win. And if that gets lost in the sauce, then doing your best and all this other stuff, it gets lost in the sauce too. You can't be honest about that that you do not like to lose and that you do like to win. Well, then you can get around to playing one point at a time. You can get around to genuinely doing your very best and being better each time you go out in terms of your skills. You can get around to all that stuff. And what that video does is it helps you get to reality very quickly. Because in my experience, walking around every day, be it at the tennis courts, uh, dealing with, any any business I've ever dealt with, the most difficult part of dealing with anyone, be it a child, and a friend, anyone, is getting them into the reality phase. Because if they're in the past or the future and they're saying what if and all this other stuff, you don't even have a conversation. You're in a speculative environment at that point. And until we get to reality and we address what's going on and accept that, we really got no move from there. That is so very true. Well yeah, we have to be in reality. As painful as it is, as uncomfortable as it is, we can at least move from there. And what that video does is it puts you point blank straight into reality. Mm-hmm. You know, if your child if your child's overweight and he's moving really slowly and it's affecting his play, it's right there on camera. If your child is acting like a little spoiled ass, and it's right there on camera, it's easy to see. If your child is weak on the backhand side, and and is being exploited and 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 beaten because the backhand is weak, it's right there on camera. It gets you to reality immediately. So that would be and a humble are suggestion. Of, of mine.
0: Yeah, are you of the mindset, John, that? this is videotaping matches is something that parents should start as soon as their kids start playing competitively. Um, yeah. You know, that this is yes. something, yeah. Even with the I youngest kids that that they even can learn from watching these.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't coach per se on an individual basis um, un- unless it's someone that is playing, for instance, in the first probably 20 or 30 in the world and they, they want very specific, private, that no one will ever know about, uh, that type of consulting. But when I'm at the course training every day, um, there are kids practicing and playing. And just the other day, there was a, uh, a, a guy with his daughter. She was like six, and she was hitting balls, you know, off the drop, dropping the ball and hitting it. And, He came over, and they were watching me practice for, like, 30 minutes. And I was like, wow, these people have been gracious enough to take their time to watch. You know, what can I give? How can I help? And so I went over and asked him. I said, hey, you know, is there any way that I can help? I'm not going to get out on the court. That's the the local pro's job, and that's that's what they're good at, and that's their money. I'm not going to, you know, take money off their table, and that's not my job. But how can I help? And he said, well, if there was one thing you could suggest, what would you suggest? And I went and got my phone, and I pointed to it, and I said, video her. Every lesson, video her. Every practice, video her. And then take her home, pull up YouTube, so you've got a match of a player that she likes, and then put your phone beside of it, so you've got her. Go to the match. Watch the match a little bit. Talk about the match. Go to her, watch her stuff, talk about her, let her visualize all of this with her favorite player and with her own own strokes, her own shots. And I guarantee you she'll sleep on it, then have her go hit on a wall. It might drive you crazy, but have her hit on a wall of like a bedroom or a garage or something like that. And as she gets a better feel of the racket in her hand, and then she's seeing the video in her mind. Every lesson she does, you will be maxing the money you're spending. You'll be maxing out because it won't just be about what the coach says at that point. You'll be coming in with artillery
0: in her mind.
1: You'll be coming in with her having seen this shot over and over again, seeing the type of player she wants to be, seeing her athleticism. Takes you. That makes your improvement exponential at that point problem in this country with with players developing and why they've developed so slowly and why there's been such a drought of american players at the very highest level and even the depth of american players why it's been so sketchy is because the rate of progress quite frankly sucks and part of the reason it sucks is there's not enough dynamic movement in that process there's got to be a lot of play. There's got to be a lot of watching play. There's got to be a lot of thinking about play. There's, it's, it's very, very mental at the best level, and you're constantly visualizing your own game, other people's games, what you want to improve, how you want to play, how you can best win. It's a very dynamic process. So this gentleman, after they had watched practice, I just picked up the phone, explain to him what I just said, basically, and paraphrase. And he looked at me and he was like, we'll do it. We'll definitely do it. That's something we can do. And I think it is something that everybody can do, no matter what your level is. When you're getting visual feedback like that in reality, your mind won't help but be able to deal with it and help you improve.
0: That's awesome. I mean, You know, we've talked a lot uh, in the past on this show about coaches videotaping players and watching video and, you know, what to do when it's a rain day and you can't be on the courts and how that's a great time to pull up video and discuss it with the kids and, you know, what do you see and those types of things. But from what you're saying, you even take it a step further and say, well, you know, yeah it'd be great if the coaches did that, but really, the parents can and should be doing it, and it's so simple now, especially with our phones, that there's
1: really no reason not to and and here's the deal lisa not not knowing what you're doing is not a good enough excuse because you can be you can be dumber than a box of rocks about tennis, and if you watch enough through the video, through matches, through all, through YouTube, if you watch enough, you can start to get a very good sense of the basic fundamentals of what it's going to take to win. Now, yes, there is specific knowledge that has to be obtained along the way. There's no question about that. But part of the reason of this slow development in this country is you've got a logjam of people with a bunch of what I, the best word I know is charlatans, that are down on the low end of the spectrum that are providing all this useless information and people are log jammed down there with them and there's no movement. It's just static as hell. It's not dynamic whatsoever. And as you get more parents video and as you get more parents understanding the game and then you get the parents interacting with the children. So this is what our generation did constantly and we didn't have phones but the parents were so interactive. They were always watching other people's matches. Uh, the kids were always interacting about the matches, uh, always thinking about, hey, what's the best thing I can do? What's the best thing this person can do? And, and now with video, and we would need video cameras, but we essentially use our minds in this way. And as you use the video cameras, you begin to use your mind and your creativity and your imagination, so you're playing reels of film in your head constantly, and as you do this, then the logjam of crap at the low end of the spectrum, you start to realize, well, that really doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just there because people are trying to make what they feel is a living, and that's cool. That's their right, but in terms of having anything to do with achieving excellence, it has almost nothing to do with it. So the sooner we can get you from a beginner to the process of a professional, if you start there, there's no reason every player can't start with, a, with the process of a professional. It doesn't mean you're going to act like that or you're going to play like that immediately, but if you start with the process of a professional, then you're going to do different than if you start in that logjam of mediocrity. Your whole, your whole approach changes. Your whole path changes. And you just do different Absolutely. things. You train, yeah, you train differently. You choose your tournaments differently. You choose your coaches differently. You, you go about your days differently. The whole thing is different. And so I would encourage, it doesn't matter to me if your child is six and they're just beginning, think about it as a professional. What would a professional do? I guarantee you that one of the things that will come to their mind is, hey, it would be good to watch some matches on YouTube. It would be good to like video some practices or some matches and check them out. And so, but don't, please don't let that, well, you say, well, I don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. What, what you might not understand is 80 to 90% of the people that are trying to give you information don't really know what they're talking about either. So you're, you're not, you're not in, you're, it's not like you're in, you know, you're, you're not really that far behind the eight ball. And right. it's not, right. and, and if it can help you bond with your child, let's say that's the only thing that came out of it. Let's say you knew nothing about tennis and your child knew nothing about tennis and everybody was just sitting there, right? Like dead hay in a field. Let's say that was like the level of intelligence. You still get a lot out of it because you're getting to know your child better. Your child's feeling like, hey, you know, this is actually kind of cool because everybody's getting to bond in a way where you become closer. And in my view, only good things can come of that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, let's segue because
0: we're uh, reaching the last quarter hour of of our conversation. Okay one of the things you mentioned in, in the videotaping that gets captured is the player's behavior on the court, their energy, um, their, their emotional control or lack thereof. And some news that I got, uh, today that I thought was really interesting. And again, I apologize that we're pre-recording this a couple of weeks before it's actually airing. So this may be old news by the time this airs, but, um, USTA Oklahoma just instituted a zero-tolerance policy for junior tournaments uh, in terms of on-court behavior and that uh, bad behavior results in immediate suspension from tournament play. And I have very conflicted views toward this policy and I'm really curious to hear what you think about it and also kind of comparing it to the policy at the collegiate level about excessive cheering, jeering, etc. cetera. Um, what are your
1: thoughts? I think it's all a joke <clears throat> and I'll, 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 you know, I'll go into that, but I think it's all a joke. I think it's people sitting behind a desk making choices that they have no idea about. Let's, Let's take the game back. People are, most of them are historically ignorant too. Let's take the game back to the great Australians that usually behaved very well. They were extremely fit in the fifties and sixties. The Rod Lavers, the Lou Hodes, the Kenny Rosewalls, Fred Stollys, John Newcomb's precedent okay. of, of good, good behavior and fitness. Then let's take it. Then who comes along? Well, Ely Nastasi comes along, and Jimmy Connors comes along, and John McEnroe comes along. And the level of growth in the game multiplies exponentially. Why? Because it's nice to have well-behaved fellas out there that are fit and doing their best and in all white and things like that. That's one component of the game. That's a necessary component of the game. It's also real nice to have a guy with long hair come out that's not really dressed so tidy, that uses some different kind of strings, that's cursing sometimes, that's showing a little bit of flair, you know, that's, that's grunting, that's sweating, that's talking to the audience. This is another contrast in an art form that needs contrast in order to sell tickets. Also, in order to be appealing... I'm talking to everybody, okay? I'm talking to everybody listening to you as human beings, okay? When you go to work some days, are you are you feeling like jovial and, and like you should be behaving just exquisitely? It's, hell no. You got stuff on your mind. You got something might have happened with your kids or your spouse or you might have a boss that's a complete ass. You know, and you got to, like, okay, you're not going to, like, go postal on everybody, true, but we're in an arena in tennis where that's not an option. You're just not going to go postal and start shooting people. That's not an option in tennis. You have parameters. You have lines. You have scoring rules. You have have very clear parameters. So if going postal is not an option, everything else – you're not harming anybody. You're not harming their. Pro- so to have different personalities, to have different things going on, is a plus for the game. And when you when you think about the greatest American players that have ever lived, people can talk about how Pete might have been boring, but if you watch Pete's fire, on a daily basis and a weekly basis, and you watch how he got up in some of those umpires' grill. When they, would, when they would fall asleep up there, basically, and be costing him, in some cases, several million dollars, and you look in, at him in his eyes, you're going to see a lot of intensity. And uh, with, with the greatest players that have ever come from America, you see an enormous amount of intensity. And to attempt to take that away through some crossing guard, elementary school-type ruling... I can tell you, uh, a year ago, I was cheering for the Kansas team, the women's team, and the college. I mean, we've seen things in college. There will be whole fraternities and sororities, especially the fraternity guys, will come out at other schools, and they'll break every rule you could ever imagine. They will go berserk. You know, guys in Viking hats, sometimes half drunk, they're, they're breaking every rule you could ever imagine. So we're, I'm going by the rules, but I'm being loud. I'm being boisterous. I'm rooting for my squad. You know that's part of the fun. And the lead, the head umpire comes over and says, "You're going to have to be quiet, or you can leave. You're going to have to leave." I said, "Do you own the this?" Problem? Is that a
0: college match?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. His name is Bob, and I won't say his last name unless he offends me again this, you know, this weekend. If he offends me again this weekend, you and I will have a whole different interview to do. But <laughs> he, he, I, said, I, I said, do you own this property? And he said, well, no. I said, do you, do you run the city that taxes this property? And he said, no. And he put his hands up, and he said, but for this period of time, I control all of this him in the eye and I say you gotta be shitting me pardon my French <laughs> but you you really have to be kidding me right I said here's, here's what's gonna happen you're gonna go back and do whatever it is you do because I haven't figured out what you do yet because you're being paid and I still haven't figured out because I just saw you eating some pizza over there while these girls are competing their asses off so you go back and do whatever it is you do I'm going to continue to cheer the way I want to cheer. And if you come back and threaten me again, I'm going to sue you personally. Not the USTA. You can't hide behind an organization. I'm going to sue you personally because I'm not breaking any rules. I'm rooting for my squad. You are what's wrong with the game. If we were in Allen Fieldhouse at KU with 20,000 people screaming, do you know the kind of things that are said in that building to referees and players and everything else? We're, we're in an athletic... This came from gladiators. This is where this originated, in arenas. This is sports. It's athletics. It's competition. Don't expect me to be behind a desk with a pencil, with a little latte, and being all calm and concise it's emotional that's what's so appealing because as human beings we have emotion and to try to take that out of play is simply stupid in my view and it's a joke because it's what i like about sports it's what everybody i know loves about sports and so it's just it's it's simply foolish in my view lisa and you let if, if people aren't harming other people or their property, you let them play. And you see what comes out of it, and it creates drama, and it creates tragedy, and it creates beauty, and it plays out. Can you imagine if we were to go see a movie and there were all these parameters? No, nobody would like movies. And so and do they think, do it under –
0: Do you – sorry, do you, I was going to say, do you think that that's – contributing to the decline of
1: popularity of the sport no question no question and that's why with this particular guy and any other umpire i encounter they're going on our terms you have to be you have to be knowledgeable enough and you have to be ballsy enough to set the terms because they're trying to set terms on the sport and they're trying to set terms on you And if you know what you're doing, and if you're equipped, they have nothing. They have no power. But what they do, like like in many different parts of society, they try to intimidate. They try to bully. And many times they're not nearly as informed as you can be as a player, as a spectator, as a parent, as a fan. And you have to come. You have to come equipped. And, yes, if, if they think that... Tennis is going to compete, football, cricket, soccer. Have you ever seen an 80,000-person soccer stadium over in England or Spain? And and what, people are going to just be real jazzed about coming and seeing some kind of BS, zero-tolerance policy where you're having a bunch of, like, um, automatons walking around hitting little yellow balls? Are you kidding me? When people have movies to choose from, they can go see comedians, they can go see concerts where somebody like Chris Brown is taking off his shirt within five minutes and he's sweating like crazy and Justin Bieber's like letting his pants sag to his ankles. And and everybody, and and, and they think people are going to come and watch uh, two automatons come and hit the ball. They're shrinking their audience day by day. And the problem is the people that are doing it, like a USTA official or an umpire, they don't get paid squat. They're doing this out of their political ambition or their, their, whatever their personal agenda is. They're not thinking of the business of the sport, the survival of the sport, the well-being of the sport, and most importantly, the enjoyment of the sport for those who participate in it and for those who watch. So I've got zero, I've got zero tolerance for their mentality.
0: Zero. So, so let's, let's extrapolate this a little bit. And again, um, this is old news by the time this airs, but, uh, the, the Canada, England, or excuse me, Canada, Great Britain Davis cup match and where the 17 year old Shapovalov, uh, hit a ball in anger and hit an official in the eye and was immediately defaulted and fined $7,000 and has publicly and privately apologized for his actions. Um, you know, and, and I don't think anybody would take issue with the fact that he should have been fined. Um, you know, the official was injured, and that's never okay. But it's interesting to read kind of the conversations that have gone on around this, you know, that, you know, he should have been kicked out of the game. That was absolutely inexcusable. And to me as a parent and more importantly, I guess, the parent of a male, um, this was a 17-year-old kid playing in the fifth rubber his entire country is watching to see if he's going to be able to take his country to the next level of Davis cup play and his emotions got the better of him. I I don't excuse his behavior and I definitely feel like he should be punished, but I certainly understand what happened out there.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Do you have, before I answer this, because I have a, a detailed answer, <clears throat> we're coming to the end of the time. And Do you have the ability to extend five minutes on your podcast? Do you have that ability, yes. or do we yes. wait until next? Okay. No, no, I have the ability. Okay, okay. Are you willing to do that?
0: <laughs> yes, even though we are recording on my birthday and I'm waiting for birthday dinner, but that's okay. I, I have five more minutes for you, John.
1: I will save it. I'm happy to save it.
0: No, no, no. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want to hear what you and say. And happy
1: birthday, by the way. And I won't ask you. You can text me what you're eating, but I hope you have a good meal because, to me, food is the best part of the birthday to me. But, so I will keep it brief. I will keep it brief. I give you an idea, a story relating. In the home that I live in, I had an RV. I parked it out in front of my home for approximately 48 hours okay, a neighbor comes down, and we have an ordinance where you have to move, which I did, respectfully. Even when I moved it, the neighbor comes down and says, goes in hard like you're talking about with Shapovalov. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to make sure you get ticketed. I'm going to do hey, man, I'm just loading up the RV and I'm trying to get it out of here as quickly as possible because I know the rules. That doesn't matter to me. You should be banned from having any cars on the streets. And I finally had enough. And I took him by the collar and I said, let me, he was about 60. And I said, listen to me. You're going in this hard on me about a car. You're going in this hard on me about a parking spot. When I've told you exactly what my intentions are, I've been honest with you. Now, meanwhile, his eyes are like he's, he's scared beyond belief, which I wanted him to be because he was trying to be a bully. And I said, so you're being this hard on me with a car, so we're going to flip it around. What happens if we go to your accountant and we take a look at your tax returns for the last year? Or, I'm sorry, last 10 years. Are we going to find any indiscretions there? And you want me to go in as hard on you about something important as you just went on in on me about a car and about a parking spot and about a, a ridiculous 48-hour ordinance so you don't have to see my RV? Because I think we should take a trip to your accountant. I think we should check out those tax returns, and then I can go in as hard on you. And I let him go, and he, like, skipped away. The next day, he came and knocked on my door. He said, you know what? That was really screwed up on my part. I didn't want to – I just wanted to apologize. Because he he went back and thought about how stupid he was being and how irrational he was being. And he thought about his own indiscretions which I already knew about. And he weighed it up. And then he made a common sense choice to act with some humanity. Now, I appreciate you extending here because this relates, and it came immediately to my mind, and how it relates is this. Anyone saying that this boy who made a mistake, okay, he got un, he, he made a, his mistake was hitting the ball in, in anger and losing his composure, losing his poise. He got unlucky in that he didn't aim for the umpire. I know the people that manage and are around this boy. He played a challenger in uh, last year with a guy named Keith Evans that runs